Mark chapter 11. Not Hezekiah, but Mark. Mark chapter 11, verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. And we'll leave it there this morning. A couple of years ago, I went on a study tour to Israel for a couple of weeks. One of those weeks was spent in and around the city of Jerusalem. And when you get to Jerusalem, you quickly realize that really the big landmark in Jerusalem that everything else has built around is the Temple Mount. It's a huge structure. Uh, it's 40 to 50 meters high. It's built over a hill. It's built over Mount Zion. And these huge stones construct the walls of the Temple Mount. And on top, it's just a flat surface, about the size of two rugby fields, a flat top structure. And this is the structure on which the Jewish temple used to sit. This was the temple that Herod the Great built. This is the temple that was around in Jesus' day. It's not around anymore. Uh, these days on top of the Temple Mount is, a, is, is, a, is an Islamic mosque called the Dome of the Rock. It's that big gold top uh, structure. But uh, that's reasonably recent in terms of history. It used to be that that was the site of the Jewish temple. And in Jesus' day, the temple really was the most prominent thing, not only in the city of Jerusalem, but the whole country of Israel, the whole country of Palestine. It took up the Temple Mount, 25% of the whole city. So when you think about Jerusalem in the first century, it's not so much a city with a temple in it, it's a temple with a little city built around it. This was just the most impressive, massive, huge structure for hundreds of miles in any direction. It was just opulent, it was beaming, and Jews would flock to it from all over the world. Its size, its magnitude reflected how important it was in the life of Israel, reflected how central it was to the faith of the Jews. This was the place, they believed, where heaven and earth met. This was the place where God literally dwelt on earth among his people. It was God's dwelling place. This physical building on top of Mount Zion in Israel, it's where God resided. 
It's where people came to find forgiveness of sins. This was the whole center of people finding forgiveness, finding freedom, being cleansed, being washed, being purified through offering animal sacrifices, through bringing grain offerings and cleansing themselves in water, showing themselves to the priest. This was the way that people found favor with God. And this was the center of God's word going out. It was the center, the locus of divine authority and divine revelation. It all came from the temple. All of the Jewish faith, Judaism, just circulated around the temple system. It was incredibly important to the Jews. And here we have a story in the Gospel of Mark, and it's reflected in other Gospels, where Jesus walks into the temple. He, he didn't physically go into the actual temple itself, but around the temple, on top of the temple mount, there were these courts, these outer courts, uh, where people bought and sold various things, where some people were free to go to a certain point, and then only others could go beyond that, and so on. And Jesus came up onto the temple mount. He walked through some of the temple courts, and he starts just creating havoc. He starts overturning tables. He starts driving out people who are changing money. He prevents merchandise from being uh, bought and sold in the temple courts. And you can imagine, given how important the temple is to the Jews, how absolutely shocking this would have been, how absolutely appalling. It's not like just walking into a grocery store. You're walking into the most sacred place on the face of the earth and, and doing this thing that would have been considered sacrilegious. Absolute blasphemy, overturning the tables, preventing people from carrying on the business of the temple. Eyebrows would have been raised, and, and, and this is really the event that starts the Jewish leaders plotting for a way to take Jesus' life. It's that serious. It's that shocking. It's that appalling. And you step back and ask the question, what's Jesus doing here? What's he doing? Why is he getting so hot under the collar about all this? And there's various theories about what Jesus is doing being provoked by. Some people think it's the commercialization in the temple, that he's really unhappy about people buying and selling stuff in this crass marketplace. Uh, other people think it's because the Jews weren't letting Gentiles into a certain area, the, the, the non-Jews could only go so far, and Jesus wasn't happy about that. But there's a huge clue in the text. I don't know whether you noticed it when I read out the passage, but there is a massive clue. This is a good day to have your Bible out in front of you, if, if possible, to be following along here, because there's an incredible thing to notice. Did you notice that either side of the temple story, there's another story? Did you notice that just before the temple story, there's this crazy story, seemingly random, about a fig tree? And then after the temple story, there's part two of the fig tree story. And this is a technique Mark uses a lot in his gospel. It's got a very academic name. It's called the sandwich technique. <laughs> and what he does, quite simply, and it's genius the way he does it, is he puts one story inside another. And he packages it up, and he's being incredibly deliberate. He didn't just have all this material and say, well, a fig tree story go here, and the temple can go there side by side. No, he's thinking about this, and he's thinking, how can I explain what Jesus is doing in the temple? I know, I'm going to wrap it inside this other story. And the temple story interprets the fig tree story. And the fig tree story interprets the temple story. The fig tree story, if, 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 if you were listening, was that Jesus, on his way to the temple, sees a fig tree in the distance, and he's hungry, and so he goes over to the fig tree to see if it's got any figs on it, and it doesn't. And so rather than saying, that's a shame, there's no figs on this fig tree, Jesus instead says, cursed are you, may you never bear fruit again. Pretty common scenario that you would say to a tree, right? Uh, and, and Mark even says to us, it wasn't even the season for figs. He makes Jesus look just a little bit silly. It wasn't even, the, what's he thinking? 
cursing this fig tree. What the fig tree do? <laughs> and then after the temple, Jesus comes out, and on their way home, they notice the fig tree is withered. And Peter points it out, and he says, hey, that fig tree, you cursed it. You said it was going to wither. Look what's happened. It's actually withered. And friends, here's, here's the thing. The fig tree is a parable of the temple. Okay, it's, it's bookending the temple story. And this is what I find so fascinating about interpreting the Bible. The fig tree story explains what Jesus is doing in the temple. Jesus comes to the fig tree and he finds that it is barren, it is lifeless, and it has stopped producing fruit. That's exactly what's happened to the temple. That's exactly the problem, not just with the physical temple building, but with the whole temple system. This whole system of offering animal sacrifices and bringing grain offerings and ceremonial washings and trying to offer these things that are going to appease God's anger and placate His wrath, all of that has become like this barren fig tree. It's become like this lifeless fig tree that is really not producing any life-giving fruit anymore that's pleasing to God. I think that's the meaning behind Jesus' words in the temple. When he says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Sometimes that phrase, den of robbers, it throws us off track a bit. That's the phrase that makes people think, oh, there must have been these guys in the temple that were ripping other people off. There must have been a bunch of thieves and con artists. That's what Jesus is getting uptight about. But think about that phrase, a den of robbers. What do you think of when you hear that expression? I think of a, maybe a cave, a hideout for bandits, criminals, terrorists, a place that they go as a safe haven so that they won't be caught, a place they go and retreat to, a hideout, a refuge, so that they're not going to be apprehended. Now here's the question, do you rob from your own den? Is the den the place where the robbing happens? No, the den's not the place where people rob. The den is the safe place. The den is the, the, the place they go to try and prevent being caught. The den is the place they're trying to seek refuge in so they can go out and rob somewhere else, so they can go out and rob in the villages, so they can go out and rip people off. That's how you have to think about this. It's not that the robbing happens in the den. It's not that the temple was a place where there was all this rip-off stuff going on and con artists and street merchants. That's not the idea. That phrase, den of robbers, actually comes out of Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah's day, what was happening is Israelites were going about the normal temple duties. They were offering sacrifices. They were doing the things. They were making the prescribed offerings. But over here, they're oppressing the poor. And they're seeking injustice in the law courts. And they're ignoring the foreigner and the widow and the orphan. And, and, and God says through the prophet Jeremiah, if you think that you can come to my temple and because you're carrying on your normal duties and offering the sacrifices and doing the thing, if you think that's going to keep you safe from my wrath at what is happening over here, you are going to be shocked and mistaken. That's the idea. The temple's being used as a safe haven for people so they think they're going to escape what's coming to them. And yet God says, you can't just be thinking this is going to keep you safe. I don't desire offerings. I, desire, well, I don't desire sacrifice. I desire mercy. I desire faithfulness. That's what's happening here in this narrative with Jesus in the temple. You've got all these Israelites going about their business, offering sacrifices, bringing the blood of bulls and goats and rams and doves and whatever it's going to be. Jesus has been teaching now for years. He's been presenting himself to Israel as her saviour, as her deliverer, and nobody's taking notice. I shouldn't say nobody, some are, but here's a whole temple system that's still ignoring him. Here's a whole temple system that Jews are still using to try and get to God. And right here in the middle of the temple courts is the one greater than the temple. 
right here in the middle of the temple, is the one who succeeds the temple, is the one who is going to do away with everything the temple represents, the one presenting himself to Israel as her true saviour, the one in whom forgiveness of sins is really found, and they're missing it. They're not seeing it. They're failing to recognize it. They're just carrying on with everything they were already doing, all the sacrifices they were already making, and yet the one greater than the temple has come. And they're failing to see it. That's why Jesus says this temple has become a den of robbers. You think this is going to be a safe haven. You think this is going to keep you protected. You think this is going to keep God's favor on you. But you're missing what's happening. The whole locus of God's activity is shifting from the temple to Christ. It's shifting from the temple to Jesus. And they're not recognizing it. And friends, before we throw rocks at these Jews for what they fail to perceive, how many of us live exactly the same way? How many of us still live like we're back in the old temple? Because you know what the temple says to you? Is it says, if you bring the right sacrifice at the right time, on the right day, and it's prepared the right way, and it's presented before the right priest, then God's going to be pleased with you. Then God's going to forgive your sins. Then God's going to be, his anger will turn away from you. And today we might not bring goats and bulls and rams, but we bring all kinds of other sacrifices to try and earn God's favor, to try and get in his good books, try and earn brownie points with God and keep him on our side. And how many of us today are trying to live good lives, trying to do the right thing in the hopes that if we do, maybe God will be happy with us. If I can just live a good enough life, if I can just kick this habit of sin that's, that's dragging around after me, then maybe God's going to be happy. If I can just read my Bible enough, if I can just pray enough, if I can just give enough, if I can just go to church enough, then maybe I'll, I'll shift the ledger and God's finally going to shift from just being annoyed and angry with me and he'll finally be, be, be happy with me. He'll finally love me. And isn't it amazing how when you live in that system and you're on that performance treadmill, trying and trying and trying and doing and earning and, and, and striving and striving, God's favor always just seems one more sacrifice out of reach. Have you noticed that? How many people are trapped in that constant striving, please let this be the one that will please God's anger. We're piling up sacrifices. Some of you are doing this today. You're piling up sacrifices. You're piling on the animals one after another after another, hoping maybe now God will be happy enough. And it always just seems slightly out of reach. His happiness with you, his approval of you, his love for you just seems like this elusive thing you can never quite get your hands on. And you know the real black hole of the whole temple system? If a Jew got to the point where they couldn't afford one more sacrifice and they couldn't pay the temple tax one more time and they had nothing left to give, you know what the temple said to them? Nothing. It had no answer for them. Best you can do is sit outside the temple and beg and hope someone lends you a sacrifice. And how many of us today, we've just got to the point, I can't do anymore. I'm sick of trying, I feel useless and fed up and God's sick of me as well and we live in guilt and we live in self-condemnation and we live in rejection. We hate ourselves and we feel like God hates us as well. It's unbelievable how many Christians, born again followers of Jesus, are trapped in guilt and shame. Some of you are in this boat right this morning, you know, you feel it. You're just living in that place. You just feel like God is a million miles away from you and there's nothing you can do. You've done what you can and it's not been enough and you're just trapped and you're on the fast track to frustration and depression and just a defeated Christian life. That's where far too many people live. And Jesus walks into that temple and he starts overturning tables 
and he starts driving out money changers and he starts letting the sacrifices go free. And you know what he's doing? Have a closer look at those actions of Jesus in the temple. He turns over the tables of these people changing money. You know what they were doing? These guys, these money changers, this was like foreign exchange. It's like currency exchange. Jews from all over the world came and they would bring all kinds of currency, all kinds of coinage. And the temple required that before you offered a sacrifice, you paid a temple tax. It wasn't exploitative. It was just simply required to keep the temple going. It was fairly modest. But currency had to be converted into the coinage they used in order to have one system of currency. And here comes Jesus, and he overturns this table. It's an incredibly symbolic action, because if you can't get your money exchanged, you can't pay the temple tax. And if no temple tax gets paid, guess what? The whole system grinds to a halt. The whole system shuts down if the temple tax can't be paid. You can't support the priests and the Levites. The whole thing just, just disintegrates. And then Jesus starts letting the doves go free, the sacrifices go free. He's not physically trying to stop it. I mean, that would have been back up and running in two seconds. But here's what he's doing as a prophet, symbolically. If you can't offer sacrifices, what happens? The whole thing stops. And for a few brief moments in Israel, the whole sacrificial system grinds to a halt. For a few seconds, as Jesus overturns the tables and lets the doves go free, symbolically, what is happening is that whole system is coming to an end. That whole system of working and trying and sacrificing and offering and doing and doing and trying and trying and being and being, it's all coming to an end. This is what Jesus is announcing. Friends, he's not just cleansing the temple. He's cursing the temple. It sounds harsh, but what Jesus did to the fig tree, he is now doing in the temple. What Jesus did to that fig tree in saying this is a, is, a, is a barren tree and it's in need of withering, he's now doing to that whole system that you and I are trapped in of doing what we can and feeling like our relationship with God depends on what I do and how good or bad I am. And Jesus is saying that is a cursed system and it is coming to an end. It served its purpose. It's pointed to the Messiah, but now it is coming to an end. Friends, you need to hear that this morning. You need to hear that with new ears, that that whole system has just collapsed. When Jesus came, he didn't come to bring another animal for his own sins and for your sins. Hebrews tells us, we went through this last year, that he came into the most holy place. He came before the throne of God himself, and he brought the sacrifice of his own body the sacrifice of his own body and his own blood, he presented himself as the true sacrifice. Not just another goat or bull or ram, he gave himself as a once for all sacrifice for all of your sin. Every single thing that you have ever done to displease God, Jesus paid for that on the cross through the sacrifice of his own body. Every single ounce of it, all of your darkness and your, your hidden secrets, all of your failure, all of your regrets, all of your mistakes, all of your shame, all of that stuff that's happened that you feel like you just can't get free of, Jesus died for it and he brought it to an end. Every single thing that is pulling you down and enslaving you and trapping you and holding you back, Jesus died for it once for all. And not just for the exterior things, not just for the outward things, he died to cleanse the heart. He died to purge the conscience clear and wash us with new water so that at the deepest level of our being we can be cleansed, we can be free, we can be liberated, we can be redeemed, and we can be rescued from everything that sin has done to corrupt us and taint us. That's grace, friends. That's the good news. 
That's the center of the gospel. That's why we exist. That's what has happened to make it possible now for us to come back to God. There is nothing holding you back. There is nothing pulling you down. It's all been paid for. It's all been dealt with through the death and the resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's what Jesus has done. That's what his sacrifice on the cross and the empty tomb has accomplished. And 40 years after that, you know what happened? Jesus dies and 40 years later in AD 70, the temple comes crashing down. Titus marches his armies into Jerusalem. He lays siege to the temple and he brings it to the ground. And you can still see today in Jerusalem, you walk around the Temple Mount, you can still see the stones of the temple thrown off the side of the Temple Mount by the Romans, shattering the concrete below. Now, honestly, Titus didn't do that for any religious reason. He did that for political purposes. But in the providence of God, there is something fitting not that God loves and condones violence, but there is something fitting about the fact that Jesus walks into the temple one day and announces it desolate and impotent to save people. And 40 years later, that same temple comes crashing to the ground as a sign that that system no longer works. Everything that it represented, everything that it offers, has now shifted to Jesus. Jesus is now the place where the presence of God dwells. He is now the center of God's presence and his spirit lives in the church. We are the new temple with Christ as the cornerstone. The temple that was the center of divine authority and revelation, it's now Jesus. He is the center of God's word going out. He is the one who speaks for God. He is the true prophet. He is the true interpreter of the law. And most importantly and triumphantly, Jesus is now the place where sins are forgiven. You don't need to go on a pilgrimage anymore to Jerusalem to try and have your sins forgiven there. We now make a pilgrimage to the cross and we gaze there at the wonder of what has been done on our behalf. That's the new pilgrimage, friends. And we're going to make it in just a couple of minutes around the communion table. That's what we're doing every Sunday. We make a pilgrimage to the cross. We come again to the true temple. And we come not to go through the motions of offering just one more sacrifice, knowing that it's going to have to go on and on and on. We come to acknowledge the once-for-all sacrifice made for us by Jesus Christ. It's done, it's done, it's done. It's finished. Sin is done away with, friends. And you need to let that drop from your head to your heart. Because we've sat in Sunday school and we've heard the stories and you can give the textbook answers and you can recite it all, but too many of us still live with our hearts gripped in that performance treadmill and we haven't really let grace apprehend us at the deepest level yet. We need to ask that the Lord would just soften our hearts to the incredible grace that has come. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do. That's the message of grace. That's the reality of Jesus as the new temple. And friends, as we head towards communion this morning, you might be in that category of just trying and your life is characterized by doing everything you can possibly do and feeling like your relationship with God just depends on your own effort and your own striving. And today is the day to put down those sacrifices. Put down those sacrifices. Give it up. It's game over. You can't do it. Today is the day to fall on your knees at the foot of the cross and just say, God, I can't anymore. I can't. And you don't want me to. It's you. It's your grace. It's your forgiveness. It's all I have. We sung the words, friends. Your grace is enough. Do we mean it? Is it just the line of a song? Is it the cry of our heart? 
Is it the character of our life? Some of you just need to lay your lives down this morning and say, I'm getting off that treadmill. I'm leaving the temple behind. I'm not going back to the withered fig tree. I'm not going back to the destroyed temple. I'm going on. I'm pressing on to the new temple. I'm finding freedom there. I'm finding forgiveness there. I am forgiven. I am free. You need to speak it to your soul, some of you, this morning, and tell your own heart, I am forgiven. I am free. And I'm not going to let anyone, including my own mind, tell me any different. And some of your friends are just trapped this morning in condemnation. You're feeling incredibly deflated, like God has abandoned you. And I encourage you as we take communion this morning to allow yourself to picture Jesus walking into that temple, that temple that maybe represents your life, and overturning those tables. Overturning those tables that represent the sacrifices you've tried to build up. Overturning those tables of guilt that you're feeling. Overturning those tables of condemnation that you're living in. The self-accusation that's going on. Just constantly telling yourself, I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. God's not pleased with me. Take hold of that internal dialogue that's going on this morning, friends, and start turning it around. Start preaching the gospel to yourself. I am forgiven. I am free. Jesus is the new temple. He's come. He's forgiven. Past, present, future, it's all done away with. I'm a child of the Most High God, and he who the Son sets free is free indeed. Amen? That's the good news. We need to preach it to our hearts. We need to tell it to our souls. Friends, you need to start allowing the Holy Spirit to lift you out of that guilt and that despair that you've gotten yourself into. Start renewing your mind and refreshing yourself in the truth of what has happened for you at Calvary, the truth of the cross. But we need to act. It's not just going to happen. We need to decide this is real. This is the new temple. This is the good news. This is the truth of the scriptures, and I'm going to take steps toward it today. I'm running out of that old temple, and I'm running into the new one. I'm running into the arms of Christ. I'm running into the arms of victory. Friends, I'm urging you this morning to act, to make that your prayer, and make that your heart's cry. Can we pray together? Father, we're coming to you today, and we're laying our lives down. And we're acknowledging you as the new and the true temple. You are the one where forgiveness of sins is found. You are the one who offers grace. You are the one who offers freedom. We don't need to keep offering more sacrifices. God, how hard it is to get our minds out of that. How hard it is to wrench ourselves free of that way of living. But God, we do it this morning in the power of your spirit. We just say enough, enough of living on that performance treadmill. My relationship with God doesn't depend on what I do or do not do. It depends only on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You are the temple, and we acknowledge that freely. We thank you, we thank you, we thank you for grace this morning. We thank you for the freedom that Calvary has brought us. We thank you that we are redeemed. We thank you that we can stand before you forgiven and free, covered in your grace, washed by your blood. Lord, let that truth just sink into a new level of depth in our heart this morning. To whatever degree we know it, may we know it still more. We just ask you to press it on our hearts. And this morning we just say we're giving up the sacrifices. We're giving up the guilt. We're giving up the shame. We're giving up the condemnation. And we're running into the arms of you, the true temple, our risen Lord. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.